Hello. Hey, how's it going? It is going great. Uh, you inspired us this week, Ooh. and it has made for a great week. You're finally moving to Oregon. That's a negative. Oh. But almost as significant as that, <laughs> we have finally begun watching The West Wing. Oh, yes. I love that show. I have to say, we are maybe four or five episodes in, and I absolutely love it. It's nice. a brilliantly written show. It is absolutely delightful. Oh, that just makes my day. I'm so, so glad you guys are watching that. It makes me want to watch yeah, it again. We are too. Yeah, I, you. I would love to talk about individual episodes with you because it is genuinely if it keeps the tone that it currently has it does this great job of balancing complicated issues providing multiple perspectives on the fact that lots of issues don't have one answer they have lots of people struggling with lots of answers from lots of different perspectives and it manages to do all of that while having a fairly hopeful tone and a fairly pro-government in the sense of positive, optimistic about the capacity of the government kind of a tone, uh, all of which I've really enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny, though, because you were describing all of these things. And right up until the point you said government, I was like, oh, like our podcast. And then it just <laughs> fell apart at that point. <laughs> yeah. So it would actually be fascinating to have watched an episode and have a conversation about one of those episodes. There's a lot, I think, to talk about as we are searching for generous, optimistic, hopeful lives and in that in the context of friendship. I actually think there might be a lot to talk about in the show, even though it's an older show. Yeah, that could be fun. But uh, what about you? What, what's going on in your world? Well, we just had a great weekend. We spent the weekend at the beach, and all five of us were in one place, which is a miracle in and of itself. But more than that, we were more than physically present. Everybody was present, present. And we laughed and played and ran on the beach and played games and watched movies and had yummy food and went into town and did a little bit of shopping well, window shopping and looking around. Uh, and we just had a great time. And so now I stayed by behind one extra day to clean up the house and make it all fancy and ready. And then I'll head home after we're done recording. So it's been a great, great weekend. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to key in, though, on something you said a little bit ago about the West Wing which is having this optimistic and encouraged tone. And it actually relates to something I wanted to talk about today. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So when I read Amos Young's book on theology, he took the International Assemblies of God doctrinal statement and worked off of it, but he did so in reverse starting with the kind of end times 
hopefulness, the new heavens, new earth, what do we have to look forward to, and started there and then wrote his entire book in light of the end. And I thought it was a really intriguing way to do it. And more than that, I understand that this is, and you, you could speak to this better than I, but I understand this is kind of a hallmark of Assemblies of God theology, and it fascinates me, and I was hoping I could pick your brain a little bit about it. Yeah, this is this is one of the things that in Pentecostal theology in general, and Assemblies of God theology in particular, the denomination and the movement really see this as profoundly central. As a matter of fact, have you heard of the denomination, the four square? Yeah, of course. Okay. So the reason it's four square is because they have four general beliefs about who Jesus is, that Jesus is savior, healer, uh, sanctifier or baptizer. And then the final one is soon coming king. Mm -hmm. So this is important enough that in Pentecostal circles, it's one of the top four. And it it's deeply rooted in ways that influence day-to-day practice as a follower of Jesus. So, yeah, I would love to talk about that. Yeah, this is wonderful. And I'm so glad you said it was so central to Pentecostal theology, because I'm not Pentecostal. I'm a poor Baptist boy who just— you know, I keep ba- praying for you. I know, I know. I'll— I don't know. I don't know what to promise you. Keep praying for me. Uh, <laughs> so, the uh, you know, in my world, there's a lot of emphasis on the Word of God. Not to say that eschatology or the end times or the our future hope has no part in Baptist theology. Just like it wouldn't it wouldn't be wise to say that the Bible has no place in Pentecostal theology. But our points of emphasis are profoundly different, and. I don't always think about the end as a meaningful starting point for orienting the now. And Mm. I wonder, from your perspective, having been in the Assemblies of God for the past 20 years, serving as a pastor, what's the big deal? Why? Why think about the end? How does it shape now? Man, this is important stuff. And uh, so, two caveats here. Caveat number one is that I grew up in evangelicalism in the 80s and 90s, which means that I was deeply, deeply inundated as a maturing young believer with what I can only call an end times fever Mm. uh, that involved giant charts that went across the front of the church and like detailed all of these things out. And I find myself having been theologically inoculated from thinking about the end times. It has taken me most of the last 20 years to be interested in thinking about this again because I felt like it was overemphasized in certain parts of my uh, upbringing. Uh, You know, I think about books like 
you know, do you remember Larry Burkett, the the predecessor to Dave Ramsey? I do now. Boy, that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Right? Like Larry Burkett was the Dave Ramsey of the 80s and 90s. And Larry Burkett, the only, the first Larry Burkett book I ever read was a book called The Illuminati. Did you ever read this? <laughs> I did not. Okay, so it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a book about how the government centralizes the economy and turns on the Christians and intentionally locks them out of the economy because there are evil anti-Christian people leading the government. And it was clearly tied to a belief in the end times that I think was very specific. And I grew up genuinely believing that, like, Christianity would be illegalized before I became an adult. And therefore, there was a lot of urgency to figuring out what it meant to be a Christian. And so uh, all of that to say, I have some I have some wonky baggage with mm. eschatology as a topic. Oh, yeah, for sure. I don't know that I was quite as inundated as you're describing, but it was so prolific throughout the 80s and 90s. And, you know, so many different books were written and conversations were had. And all of these people who were certain that they had unlocked the code of Revelation or the end times and, you know, people just were obsessed with Revelation and the book of Daniel and Second Thessalonians. And they just, yeah, it was a fever and a buzz. And it's taken me all these years to recognize that there is a lot that the Bible does say and a lot that the Bible does not say about what is to come. And teasing those things apart is really important. And there are some valuable things to learn here. And so I feel like it's it's a topic I've avoided. It's a topic I don't feel mm-hmm. very you know, knowledgeable on as a result. And that's part of what intrigues me about this is that something that I have avoided and been rather leery of is something that the Assemblies of God has made central, and in reading Amos Young's book, central in a really helpful way. Yeah. And I have not read Young on this, despite the fact that he's probably the smartest Pentecostal alive today. So his (laughs) systematic is on my must read list, but I'm super interested in digging in. And and so my starting point is the 16 fundamental truths that the National Assemblies of God puts out as our basic doctrinal statement. And we don't need to read all of this, but the of those 16, numbers 13, 14, 15, and 16 are all about eschatology. And I I think the first question that we have to wrestle with, if we're asking how is eschatology relevant to everyday life in the here and now, we have to start off by asking, what do we believe about the future, right? Yeah. And I'm disappointed that that's where we have to start because I don't know. I mean, I can say some things with certainty, and then after that, I'm just like, yeah, dude, I don't get it. I don't know. 
Yeah. So, so let's start with what are the things you feel like you can say with certainty? Jesus is coming back. Those who worship Jesus will be with him in heaven forever. Those who reject Jesus will be sent to everlasting punishment in hell, along with Satan and the angels that he, that he has following him, or demons, and the Antichrist and the dragon and the beast and all these other reference points that I don't really understand in Revelation. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Is that the present earth being reborn somehow, or is this earth going to be completely destroyed and a new one built? I'm still fuzzy on. I, it's going to be great. The new heavens and the new earth are going to be great. That's, that's what I can say with certainty. Please add to the list. So I would start off by subtracting from the list. Oh, yeah, I know. The worst thing possible, right? When we're trying to make a list. <laughs> I, the only thing I would quibble gently with your the second point you made, Jesus is coming back and people are going to heaven or hell were your first two points, I think. Yes. Um, for eternity, meaning not some sort of temporary state in between things, it appears to me, and I'm just stealing straight from N.T. Wright here, that uh, the idea is not that we ascend to heaven and live in heaven eternally, but that heaven descends to earth, reunites with earth on some level in this sort of new heavens, new earth, and we live in the context of the new heavens and new earth forever, not that we go to heaven. That's a minor difference, but it is one that I think is valuable because it shifts my thinking from the sort of Looney Tunes clouds eternity, (laughs) where everybody's just singing forever, which I know you don't mean. Sure. But it shifts my thinking from there to the picture of the New Jerusalem in, in the final chapters of Revelation, which is this glorious and beautiful city, but it's specifically described as a city in which presumably city-ish things are happening. It's not just a big temple. Mm. And so there is regular life that is fully immersed in God, but it's not like we're all just sort of disembodied or on a permanent hiatus not doing anything. Yes. Um, It seems like there is a governing of reality that is going to happen. Don't you know we were, we will govern angels, Paul says at some point. Right. Yes. Thank you for clarifying all of that. That is way better than my shorthand, we will go to heaven. Uh, Yes. Thank you. Because that is way more correct. And I, I know you meant that, but just for our conversation partners who maybe hear the going to heaven language and don't think about what it means. But uh, as we're looking forward, I think this is a great starting point. There is a re-merging of heaven and earth. You know, I, I love the idea that God's dwelling place is with mankind again, the way it was in the beginning. Mm. I am confident that's going to happen. And that is, of the, our 16 fundamental truths as a movement, that is number 16. So I'm with that one. The other one, that, so that's 16. Number 13, that I think makes, again, a great point, 
is that we can hope for bodily resurrection. And that kind of goes together with it, right? Like we're not going to be disembodied for all of eternity. We're going to be embodied for all of eternity. Yeah. I'm with it for that one. Uh, I don't know if you have a lot to say or think about about that, but... Well, I knew I was going to ask you about the Assemblies of God's stance on this. So I also looked up the last few points on their doctrinal statement, and I found it interesting as I was looking through some of the verses that it cites in support of its statement, I was looking at uh, specifically the Titus 2 passage, talking about how we're waiting for this moment when the Lord appears and we're all going to be with him. Those who have died before and those who are still alive at his coming, we're all going to be met together. And here's what's fascinating to me, and that's a very hopeful and wonderful picture. But as I look at the Titus 2 passage, it's surrounded by, I would say, something a little bit more challenging. Let me just read uh, Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that is very own, eager to do what is good. And I think Mm -hmm. this is what really I was challenged by as I read that passage. It's not just that we have this wonderful hope. It's that what do we do with that hope in in the present? Well, we live godly lives. We say no to unrighteousness. We live self-controlled and upright lives because God has saved us for a place where we do good. There's a, there's a moral element to this, not just a hopeful element. And that gives me pause. Yeah, no, this is exactly it. I'm looking at the passage now too, and I find this to be absolutely fascinating, right? Paul in Titus summarizes this entire age of salvation history as the time in between when Jesus gave himself to purify us for himself and the moment when we get the blessed hope, which is he, the one we have been purified for, shows up. Mm -hmm. Um, I assume though I don't know this for sure, but my working assumption, and I'm curious if yours is as well, that following a lot of what Jesus said and sort of the, the bridegroom imagery that Jesus uses, I assume Paul is sort of resting on that bride-bridegroom language, that what Jesus is saying here is that he is purifying a bride for himself, and that that is sort of latent within the language. Is that, do you read this a different way or do you read this that way? No, I do read it that way. But here's the funny thing. Every time I think about the purification and the bridegroom imagery, there's not a moral aspect to it. There is a cleansing, a justification, a unification. You know, there is hope in there. There is cleansing in there. But a moral responsibility as we wait for that moment does not enter my mind. 
I don't wrap my head around simultaneously the coming unification between Christ and his bride and the present need to remain upright and godly. Mm. And that's, I think, where Pentecostalism is birthed out of the holiness movements of the 1800s. So those two things are permanently tied together in the Pentecostal worldview. Can, uh, I, put, there is a can I put you on the sense. spot? I'd love to yeah. put you on the spot if you don't I, mind. Can you give me just a quick primer on the holiness movement that preceded the Assemblies of God movement or, or Pentecostalism? Okay. Uh, Pentecostals, I'm sorry if I do this badly. Um, this is genuinely on the spot, and I am I am taking a swing. Uh, I'm ready. All right. Let me give you the version of this that I understand to be true. So if we look at the 1800s in the United States, this is the period between the First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Wesley, those kind of folks at the end of the 1700s, and the Pentecostal Azusa Street Revival that's at the very beginning of the 1900s. So we've got like 120 years between the two. In that time period, one strand of Christianity was the strand that is represented by the revivalist preachers who were focusing on really two things, uh, personal conversion and what I just called holiness, and holiness in very practical ways. So this is people like in the latter half of the 1800s, Billy Sunday, who is preaching against drinking and for salvation. And it's uh, folks like Charles Finney, who was an early kind of revivalist preacher uh, who is deeply revered in the Pentecostal world. You know, if, if you think of the early 1800s, and, and again, I hope I'm doing this right. In the early 1800s, Puritanism, particularly in the New England areas, had sort of burned itself out. So you had these folks who were post-Christian in a very similar way to the way we are today, because Christianity had turned into a social movement. Hmm. And so there was this sweep of revivalism in the 1800s saying, hey, stop focusing on your social identity and start focusing on your personal relationship with Jesus. And don't talk about your status of personal relationship. It's not just kind of, again, similar to what we're saying today, stop thinking about where you're going to go when you die and start thinking about how you live in the here and now. And these folks were asking almost the exact same questions you're asking right now from this verse in Titus. And they were saying, oh, there is some connection between the fact that a very real God is coming back and we better be ready and how we live today. And there was this interesting sort of combination of hellfire and brimstone and personal responsibility that led to make right decisions. Because if you don't make right decisions, you can't pretend to be a Christian. Hmm. Does that all make sense? Is that a 
Am I answering the question you're asking? You're totally answering it. That is a wonderful synopsis. Uh, Thank you. Now, I'd love to know from your perspective, as the Azusa Street Revival happens, how does the holiness movement kind of lay the groundwork for and, and what continues on into Pentecostalism from the holiness movement? Yeah, so all of these folks... So the the Azusa Street movement begins in large part because people were starting to say, okay, we desperately need this holiness that the Bible is highlighting far more than a cultural Christianity cares about. If we desperately need this holiness, we're not doing it the way we want to do it. So we need something more. And even as early as you know, Charles Wesley, they start talking about a second work of grace that is an active way in which the Holy Spirit becomes an active sanctifier of the people of God. So Wesley's language for this was that he had this encounter in which his heart was strangely warmed, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. When he's with Count Zinzendorf and, and the Moravians. And this idea that there is a second work of grace that empowers the believer to holiness, the Pentecostal movement is born in the early 1900s by asking, okay, we believe that the Holy Spirit does this second work of grace. We're going to call that second work of grace that empowers the believer, believer to holiness to be baptism in the Holy Spirit, sort of based on John's, uh, John the Baptist's comments at the beginning of the gospel, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And they start asking, okay, how do we know someone has been baptized in the Holy Spirit, thereby empowered for holiness? And in reading the book of Acts, one of the earliest answers that they come up with is, we can be confident somebody has received that baptism in the Holy Spirit if we see them speak in tongues. Mm. And that is the birth of Pentecostalism, is in answering the question from the book of Acts, oh, the visible evidence of the Holy Spirit, all of which is driven largely by this yearning for the future hope, is physically evident. So this is, if you were even looking at, I don't know if you're still looking at your Assemblies of God 16 Fundamentals, this is why if you scroll back up to number eight, it calls speaking in tongues the initial physical evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Because what they were trying to figure out is, how do we know who this has happened to? That's and so this was good. one physical thing. Yeah. I, Does that make sense? It, it makes a ton of sense. And I... <sighs> I quibble with the answer from Acts. I I believe that tongues were a sign that the Holy Spirit had come upon somebody, but I don't take it as the only indicator. But Well, the- and initially, I don't think they said it was the only indicator. That's the thing. They weren't trying to say, initially, all people who are baptized in the Holy Spirit speak in tongues— they were trying to say all people who speak in tongues by definition have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay. 
I'm, do you see I'll the difference? That. I, I, yeah, yeah. Because um, and so they're because they were answering a very different question. Well, and I really like the question that they're trying to answer, which is, how do we know that the Holy Spirit has come upon somebody and equipped them for holiness? And I think that's a great question. I would answer it differently. I, you know, Jesus basically said, people will know you by your fruit. Like, well, you've been equipped for holiness if holiness is what you produce, um, is yeah. one answer I would give. But at any rate, it doesn't matter. I, what I love is the connection that uh, they made between the holiness movement and the Holy Spirit and how that informs this idea of we've got to live in light of Christ's coming. And in light of Christ's coming, we have a responsibility to be morally upright. I'm so glad you you highlighted the history of the holiness movement, because as you talk about it, as you even use language around it, it feels like old theology. It feels like old crusty theology or Bible thumper theology, rather than our modern thinking on Christianity. And there is something really rich that I think we've lost and need to recover, even if the language makes us uncomfortable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, one of the things I love about the way in which this has worked out in answering these questions is that in seeking holiness— there are really a couple of things that Pentecostals are then doing. One, instead of trying harder on their own, they're driven to prayer. That's mm. awesome, right? Like this is a great way to seek holiness by seeking more of the Holy Spirit in your life. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> right? I, I would suggest that any movement that involves that is righter than any movement that doesn't involve that, that involves a try harder mentality for, toward holiness, mm. which I'm not trying to suggest non-Pentecostals think. No, no, um, no. No. You're just saying that that is the right starting point, period. But that's a, yeah, or at least a wonderful starting point. And I love the fact that in practical Pentecostal theology, the baptism in the Holy Spirit comes in a moment when someone who is further along than you, more spiritually mature than you, lays hands on you and prays for you, and you both recognize it to be a significant moment, and you are baptized in the Holy Spirit in that moment. It's not that it always has to happen. There's no rigid formula for how someone gets baptized in the Holy Spirit, but it is fairly normative for someone to be able to pray for the baptism in the Holy Spirit and for it to happen. And that deeply communal aspect of this is also incredibly powerful to me in seeking holiness. I love that it's not just communal, though. It's intergenerational. You, mm. this, is, this is 2 Timothy 2.2, just right off the page. You know, entrust these things to godly men who will pass it on to the next generation, who will pass it on to the next generation. Like That is an amazing picture of the proliferation of the gospel, somebody that is further along in the faith, laying hands on somebody and praying over them. Man, I mean, Paul talks about 
his churches as like his spiritual children and him being their spiritual father. And if you put it in that context, boy, that just makes a lot of sense. And first of all, from a practical personal experience standpoint, you know, I recently went through my ordination service and I had to kneel before a presbyter who laid hands on me and prayed for me. And it was a profound moment being prayed for somebody prayed for by somebody who was further along than me. As a mm. pastor, I don't get that very op- that opportunity very often. Right. And it was a reminder to me that when you create an opportunity for God to work by someone, like you said, who is a, a generation ahead or spiritually further along, what I want in that moment is to create a culture of expectation that allows God to work. Because we can definitely be shut off to God in that moment. You know, ah, this nothing's going to... I think when we come to that moment with what I would call in modern language expectancy, what I think the Bible calls hope, I think not just that something practical happens, but I think there is a legitimate supernatural thing that happens and I don't even want to say too much about that, but I think something supernatural can happen there. Um, and I, I think that's a cool agree. thing. But here's the thing that is fascinating to me. If we tie all of these strands back together, you're saying that at least a part or a consequence of that supernatural thing happening is that we will be spiritually enabled to live godly and upright lives. We will be able to use the power of the Holy Spirit to live out the holiness that God calls us to. And that, I don't think, you know, if if I'm sitting there being expectant for the Holy Spirit to do something miraculous, that is never, never in my life has that been the miracle that I thought I was waiting on. Yeah, right? Like, 100%. I get it. I, I This makes total sense. And yet I see, again, my very Pentecostal context where we have what we just generically call altar time at the end of almost every service. I see people go forward and someone lays hands on them very, very gently. And they are prayed for in an almost silent whisper And then they have some kind of encounter with God that is so profound, at least most Sundays, somebody falls over. Like, they are so struck by the moment that they lose control. Now, is somebody falling over the end goal here? Absolutely not. No Pentecostal worth their salt would suggest that. But it is intriguing, and sometimes... I do feel like that releases the person. Whatever happened in that moment that I'm uncomfortable overanalyzing certainly releases them. I mean, I remember the first time I saw this. It was in my old church, which was far less demonstrative than my current one. You know, I'd been there for five, six years. And a woman who was a drug addict and an alcoholic was prayed for at the end of the service and genuinely just fell over. And I, and, you know, a week later, she said to me, Hey, I, I, I think I was healed of my addiction. And I am a 
horrible Pentecostal. And so my thought was, <laughs> okay, well, I'll believe it in a year or two or maybe three. Well, she made it the year, she made it the two, and she made it the three. Wow. Like, she was set free, and that language masks the fact that we're talking about a holiness issue. Mm. She was a holier person after that moment than she was before that moment. Mm. Now, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but a particular issue that was a sin issue that dominated her life was no longer an issue that was dominating her life. And that mm. is breathtaking to me. Uh, yeah, man. So I got to admit, when we started this conversation, I thought we were going to really be bogged down in eschatology and end time stuff. And here we are, like, very much in the present, which is great. This is exactly what I wanted and, and hoped would happen, that, yes, Jesus is coming, and that has moral imperatives and therefore, we need the Holy Spirit to help us live holy lives. I didn't realize it would boil down to that concept, and but I'm so glad it did. Yeah, I am fascinated by this. And several of the things that you've mentioned that you're like, huh, I don't think that way. You know, it makes me realize that there are ways of approaching these topics that maybe, you know, the same way I'm sharing things with you that maybe— you hadn't thought about, I'm actually curious to turn to the folks who are listening to us and ask this question, because I'm sure there are things I haven't thought about in exactly the same way. And we, I haven't had a chance to kind of dig into your thoughts, to, but I would love to turn this to the audience and just say, when you think of our future hope, of what's going to happen in the future, of Jesus coming back, and the new heavens and the new earth, whatever language you want to use about it, why does that matter for you for today? I'm so curious what other answers people will offer, because I think there's a richness here that it's time for us to come back to as folks who had given up on this in the early 2000s because we were burnt out on it in the 80s and 90s. I think it's time to come back and say, what richness is there for us here? Yeah, I would love to hear from folks because I need my thinking on this expanded. I have remained fairly closed mm. to end times conversations, but if they at all can produce the richness of this conversation, by all means, bring them on. Yeah, 100%. Well, it is so hard for me to leave that topic behind because I would love to just keep going. But for the sake of time, we do need to transition. And I'm mm. actually excited because we're in the middle of our Summer in the Psalms series, and I'd love to know what thoughts have come up for you as you've been reading the Psalms lately. Mm, well, I want to hear the same thing from you, but I'll share mine first. Uh, I started a book this week by one of uh, my heroes, Eugene Peterson, uh, that mm. is very profoundly called Answering God. It is his one of his several books on the Psalms, and I barely got past page one before I had to stop and think, because he had so much loaded into this book. And I wanted to read you a great quote that, for me, captures a little bit of what the Psalms is all about. Um, yeah. So this is about three sentences. 
I don't think you've read this book, have you? No. Answering God, Eugene Peterson? Okay. So here's what he says. Poetry doesn't so much tell us something we never knew as bring into recognition what is latent, forgotten, overlooked, or suppressed. The Psalms text is almost entirely in this kind of language. Knowing this, we will not be looking here primarily for ideas about God or for direction in moral conduct. We will expect, rather, to find the experience of being human before God exposed and sharpened. Mm. And I think that's amazing and have nothing else to say about it. Uh, Yeah. I don't want to tarnish it either. (laughs) Right. That's exactly how I feel. Thank you. Well said. I don't want to tarnish it because it's just better. So what are your thoughts? Yeah. My thoughts come directly from Psalm 30. And I was really fascinated this week. There's a lot of songs that come from the book of Psalms. And one of the my favorite things to do is come along through a psalm and go, oh, that's where that song lyric came from, and just kind of mm. enjoy revisiting the song in my head. And in Psalm 30, the song that came up was, I'm trading my sorrows. You know, though the sorrow, my sorrows may last for the night, joy comes with the morning. I'm trading my sorrows. Oh, yeah. I'm trading my shame. Great fun song that I have sung a thousand times over and I really get into it, or at least I used to. It's a little tired now for me, but at any rate, I was fascinated by what the psalm says and what the song does not say. They both contain the statement. I'm going to read the ESV version here. It says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So great. We, we know, we recognize that both in the psalm and in the song. But what the psalm goes on to do is describe the works of Yahweh that resulted in taking that, the psalmist's sorrow and turning it to joy and declaring in specific language what Yahweh has done for him. And that to me is different than the song. The song actually has no basis written into it for turning our sorrows to joy. It's just, I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my sickness. I'm trading my weakness. It's actually very me-centric. I'm doing these Mm. things. And that's not at all what is happening in the psalm. The psalmist is experiencing pain and destruction and frustration and whatever, And here's what Yahweh did in history to step down and to change events, and that turned sorrow into joy. I like the specificity and the concrete praise of Yahweh that comes from that. That's awesome. I am continually struck by how much specificity there is in the Psalms, right? Like, This is not generic, vague language. This is concrete, hard and fast, here comes God. You're absolutely right. It's not generic. It's not vague. And I think that gives significant potency and power to it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Mm, What a good thought. Why, thank you. My pleasure. Mostly, I, I, I was complimenting the psalm, but you too.
Oh, okay. All right. Fine. I'll take a back seat. <laughs> oh, man. Well, are you ready to uh, answer a Witch Josh question? I Yeah, lay it on me. All right. Here it is. Today's Witch Josh question. Which Josh's first concert was DC Talk and Michael W. Smith? Ooh, ooh, ooh. That one was me. Yes. Ooh. That was awesome. I saw that in Portland's Memorial Coliseum, and we didn't have great seats, but I got to see the concert nonetheless. And it was fun. The one thing I remember from that concert is sitting way up high and looking down on the stage, and I could see the whole stage. We at least were were directly in front of the stage, but we were very, very far back. And there was a moment where DC Talk came out and sang, time is ticking, it keeps on ticking, your time is ticking away. And they got up there, all their dancers and all the band members or whatever, and they made this circle and they started kind of dancing in a circle like the like a clock was ticking away. And I don't know, in my preteen self, that was the coolest thing they could have ever done. And it's like stuck oh, with me forever. that is still pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's like, a- am I picturing this correctly? So from the top, like from the bird's eye view, there's like five or six people or whatever that are standing together to make up the like second hand and they are moving synchronously to move themselves as the second hand of the clock. You know, I don't even have that great of a recollection of it. I actually am picturing a bunch of people in the outside of a circle and like moving in time to like almost rotate Mm. the clock but I, I don't know. Maybe they did the second hands thing. I, it was a long time ago. Fair point. What, fair point. But what, what was yours? I'm curious. Okay. So there's something slightly nerdy and overly Christian-y about DC Talk and Michael W. Smith being your first concert. Okay. But yes, my admitted. capacity to throw stones in this situation is very limited because my first concert was Carmen. (laughs) And and that's about as nerdy and Christian-y as you can get. Yeah. Yeah, it really, really is. Um, Man, and that really goes well with our like end times kind of conversation because he just, he had a lot of those kind of elements to it. Very, I don't know, he was really into the spiritual world. Oh, well, I mean, he was a Pentecostal. Ah, that explains it. Yep, yep. He's one of us. <laughs> he was also uh, the only Christian artist who would come to New England. So, you know, for all six Christians that were in New England at the time, he was the only one willing to come. So, Well, I mean, uh, to be fair, there were only like six Christian artists at the time. It was like, it was <laughs> Carmen and Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant and like yep. uh, Petra. And Petra. Oh, do you remember Petra's worship album? Like one of the very first rock bands that turned into a worship, like decided they were going to do a worship album. Yeah. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. It was. It and I'm thinking. It not, but. One of our most faithful listeners, Pat, I know you're grinning from ear to ear right now listening to us talk about Petra. Uh, Pat swears up and down that he owes his 
Christian, his life as a Christian to Petra, uh, that they served a need for him when they were really a popular band. And he just has the, the greatest respect for them as a band and, and just a special place in his heart. So every time I think about Petra or even listen to a Petra song, and yes, I have recently, uh, I think about Pat. That's awesome. Well, I haven't listened to a Petra song recently, but I have listened to a Michael W. Smith song recently. Um, okay. Remember that song, Kentucky Rose? Oh, um, yes. Yep. I have listened to that song within the last 24 hours. Wow. All right. Yeah. Well, to all the listeners at home, we better turn off this podcast so you can go listen to some Michael W. Smith. <laughs> all right. Are we on for next week? Absolutely. I can't wait. I'll talk to you then. All right. Bye.